our little uh, break in July, she and I uh, climbed a 14,000-foot peak. Uh, Mount Columbia, it's in a mountain range where they call it, or next to some mountains called the Collegiate Peaks. So you have Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and Columbia, four peaks that are all 14,000 feet high. And uh, we... Uh, we, we said, okay, let's do this thing. And so we got all ready for it, kind of packed for it. Uh, didn't really get in shape myself um, for it. Ran a bit. But uh, we went out there, and uh, we started at 9,500 feet. And it was a six-mile hike in and also 2,500 feet elevation gain. And it took us three and a half hours to do it. And I was thinking, so we started at 8.30, got in about 12 o'clock noon, and then we proceeded to set up our camp, and we were done, and just kind of done by about 1 o'clock. And I'm like, oh, well, that wasn't that bad. And uh, we brought in packs and everything, so we had our tents, and nobody was there. I mean, we were out in the middle of, uh, of the, the woods. And uh, so I looked at her, I go, feeling pretty good. You want to try to do the peak today? And she's like, yeah, sure, let's do that. Our plan was to do the peak the next day, which was actually a really good plan. Um, so we start off, and all we have left to do, according to the map, is one mile. We don't have to go six miles. And we just got to go up another 2,000 feet. And so we start hiking, well, more like climbing at that point, because it's, it's just up. And, and somehow, I did this back in the 90s, and I forgot how hard it is. Um, and maybe it's amnesia, I'm not sure, or oxygen deprivation, but... I, we started doing this thing, and, and it's seriously about like 10, 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, we're like, and, and you do 20 or 30 steps, 40 steps, and then you're not going fast, and you're stopping, and you're like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And uh, as you go up higher, you realize neither can a lot of other things in nature breathe at that altitude. And the trees stop growing, and animals start appearing. And you get above, we no longer saw mosquitoes. That was a beautiful thing. It's about 13,000 feet where you don't find mosquitoes, if you're wondering uh, if you can ever escape them on planet Earth. Um, we get up to the summit, and we're right up there. And we're about ready to, like, celebrate. And it wasn't too bad. We're like, hey, this isn't bad at all. About two and a half hours, and we get up there, and it's a false summit. And we're like... Oh, no, because what happens is everything is so high, you don't know, you can't really see much other than this is really tall. And we got up to the summit, and we're like, oh, no. And we got, like, another 45 minutes to go and higher. And I look at her, and I go, sorry. You know, they make topo maps, and if you read the topo maps, it tells you where the false summits are. And uh, I haven't read a topo map in a long time apparently and um, so we start hiking again to go another 45 minutes and we get up to the summit and it's another false summit and I'm like eh, eh, <laughs> no and by then we'd been hiking over probably for the day over six hours and uh, which is a lot I mean at that altitude and lack of oxygen and I was seriously wondering whether we should even go on but then that would mean we have to go all the way back down, having not hit the summit, and then go back and do it the next day. And I'm like, I ain't doing that. But we're at that, that point where if you hike, you've heard of this out there in the mountains, you don't want to bonk. I don't know if you've ever heard of bonking, but it's when you go beyond the point that your body can get yourself back. So you think, oh, I'm going to push it and get all the way there. But you also got to think about the fact that you got to get back. And we were at a point there where I was, I was concerned. 
because I'm like, I don't know whether we really should do this because what if we get up here and we can't get back? Because that's, that's a long ways down. And, uh, but I looked at her and I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, let's do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I hope my wife doesn't kill me before I kill my daughter and myself. Um, because you know, they call that, when you bonk, they call those rescue missions, and you find about it on the news, right? I mean, you see the people that bonk, and I'm like, yeah, I could just see my whole church. Two hikers in Colorado bonked. Found in a praying position. <laughs> so we end up hiking, but um, that was hard. It's hard. I, I mean, it, it pushed us. We wanted to quit. There was just moments there where you just like, I can't go on. You can't breathe. There's no air. And the challenge of that hike, it, it, it pushed us, and it pushed me in ways I'd forgotten how difficult those hikes were. It's funny, I was uh, at a conference listening to Ravi Zacharias, who's a famous Christian apologist, uh, philosopher, and he goes around and speaks at college campuses and debates atheists and agnostics or whatever, and he opens it up for uh, Q&A time at the end uh, on these talks, and uh, he says one of the most frequently asked questions by people is, how could a loving God allow someone to go through suffering and pain if he could prevent it? And it's, it's a great question, and it's a necessary question. It can be answered, but it's the most frequent question or one of the most frequent questions asked. Now, I, I know God was saying about our hike, like, dude, that's all on you. That's not on me. You know, you're the ones who want to go climb a mountain. Um, but as I came back, it was, to me, just, uh, it just kind of hit like a wave. In one week, let me just tell you, this is what just happened in one week. This is the news I got from people. Uh, you heard about my father-in-law being diagnosed with cancer. As I said that, someone came up to me after the service and said their spouse has cancer, it seems, it most likely looks like. Another couple was hit the week before with the suicide of a friend. Another couple went through a miscarriage, which I didn't know about. Another man lost his son in the tragic death. And this all happened in our body in the past week, or the week prior to that Sunday. And you add on top of that all the other things that people are struggling through, the trials and the, the suffering and uh, any number of things, whether it's marriage or finances or job, people recovering from divorce and banks threatening to take everything, and, and you, you don't even, I haven't even touched on the persecution the church is facing, not only here, but obviously around the world. And, and you get to these points in life, and you, we watch each other, and we see this happen where people are to the point where it's just too hard. It's gone on so long. Maybe they want to quit. Maybe they do quit. They walk out. It's too painful. And it does present a question of if God is this loving, uh, why does he let these trials happen? Because he could stop them. He could stop any trial that we're going through right now. Any one of us. And as we move through this book of James in the coming months, or obviously we're starting here at the beginning it's a book written, uh, most, uh, I would say, the predominant amount of scholars would say it's written by the brother of Jesus. Now, if you didn't know Jesus had a brother, uh, that may come as news to you, but Jesus did have a brother, and James uh, was his name and may have had more than just one brother. Um, 
So James is the, uh, most likely is the brother of Jesus. I won't die for that, but uh, I, I would say predominant mouse scholars say that. And, and he compels them to write this. He says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Makes it pretty clear where he falls out on, uh, with Jesus in faith. And he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, now what's the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, the, the nation of Israel was dispersed throughout the Middle East. And wherever they went, they would set up these synagogues and places of worship. And James is writing this letter to them. And, and there's some question of, of saying, well, it seems kind of like he's leaving out the Gentiles. And he may not have been leaving out the Gentiles. Or, or he may have. This could have been a spiritualization of it, just a generic term. Or it could have been specifically to these, these Jewish people that have been scattered throughout. Regardless, the, the thing that we do know is that he's writing to a very young, brand new Christian audience. This is all new to them. And they don't have all the computers, technology, books, and all these things to really understand what their faith is about. And, and so he's writing this letter to them, I think inspired by God, called by God to write this thing and to succinctly describe what the Christian life looks like, how this faith should work. And you see throughout this, book, this letter, James just kind of moving into topic after topic, saying, hey, this is how a Christian lives. This is how a Christian lives. This is how we do this. And he starts off, which I think is so interesting. I think God has him start off with this. Count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He starts off with considerate, and I memorized this in the NIV, considerate pure joy when you encounter various trials of many kinds. God's first words to this young church, brand new Christians, is considerate joy when you encounter trials. It's the first thing he said to them, and he's still saying it 2,000 years later. Considerate pure joy. I wouldn't necessarily go to someone who is in a trial and go, considerate pure joy. You might get shot or kicked out of the house, Right? Because what joy and trials, they don't go together. You, you, joy, trials, trials, joy. I mean, trials are bad. Trials are sad. Trials are hard, right? Suffering and pain, all that stuff, dark. Nobody likes trials. Joy, that's well, that's awesome. That's fun. That's good. That's like, I like that place. Bright, light, happy, laughter. Good. Trials, not so good. And, and trials and joy, they just don't, they don't go together. Everybody loves joy. No, nobody likes trials. They don't, they don't go together. It's kind of like the Browns and winning. It just, they don't, well, maybe this year. Maybe this year, right? Well, we'll go for it. Phelps and gold, that goes together. Trials and joy, 
And he says the trials of many kind. What, what kind of trials are out there? Well, it, the Bible, as you go through it, there's, there seems to be four different categories the Bible repeatedly mentions. One is Satan can bring trials. You read the book of Job, and it's very clear. Satan can bring trials, suffering, and all kinds of different things, death, sickness, Next category that's out there that the Bible talks about is sin, our sin or someone else's sin. You start right in Genesis and you can see right at the beginning, sin brings tragedy and death and any type of suffering, any number of suffering. Ours or somebody else's broken relationships. You see also right there in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, where it talks about how this world is cursed and brings its own set of trials. Our bodies break down, our minds don't work, our emotions are out of balance, our judgment can be broken. This world, it's a, you have to sweat and work and it fights against you. And the final one is the one you see happening more and more just in our world, but persecution for our faith. That brings, our faith brings its own trial. And Jesus says, look, you are going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. And if every Christian leader that I'm reading and following right now is right, it's going to get worse here in America. Name your valley, name your suffering, name your trial, and, and, and God is saying right now, I want you to consider it all joy that you're going through these trials. What are you going through right now? What's your trial? What's, what's the area of suffering or what's one of them? Do you look at that with joy? It, it just, even saying it is hard. I, I've been looking at this passage for a number of weeks, just reading over the book of James, and I keep coming back here going, that's, that's just so foreign. See, in this life, and the human heart is bent, wired towards avoid suffering. Like, let's, let's get this off the plate, right? Let's, let's get rid of the trials. Let's, let's go for self-protection and, and manage life so we take out all risks and all suffering and all trials. Let's, let's get the jungle gyms off the playground. Let's get the merry-go-round out of there, right? If somebody makes a product we get hurt by, well, let's sue them because how in the world could they make a product that you could get hurt by? Because we shouldn't be hurt. trials and joy. I've been reading a book by Larry Crabb called Shattered Dreams, and he talks about this whole idea of God in his mercy comes along and in James and through James demands we embrace what God thinks of trials and sufferings. It's a radical shift. If you're going to answer that question, you really need to look at it from God's point of view and, and how he looks at the whole thing. And he says this, Larry Crabb says this, as long as our purpose is to have a good time, to have a soul pleasure, our soul pleasure exceeds soul pain, God becomes merely a means to an end, an object to be used, never a subject rightfully demanding a response, never a lover to be enjoyed. Worship becomes utilitarian, part of a cunning strategy to get what we want rather than a passionate abandonment 
to someone more worthy than we. So what's the purpose of trials? You have to skip to verse 4, and we'll come back and talk about the rest of verse 2 and 3, but he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It says, consider it joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials because it makes you perfect and complete so that you'll lack nothing. God's using trials to perfect us, to complete us. The reality is no one's perfect, no one's complete. And what does that look like? If you read through the New Testament, it says several different times very clearly that we are, going to, we are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. Philippians chapter 2 says, I want you to be conformed to the image of Christ, his attitude. And Christ is perfect, right? He's the one who's complete, and he's saying, I want you to become like Christ. And it's in the middle of the trials where what is truly us and what is truly Christ is shown. And God says, it's time for that to go and, and me to come. And, and the trials is what pushes that to the surface. And keep in mind, as he's, re- as he's writing this, James is the brother of Jesus. It's not like this is cheap words. James saw his brother who he realized at some point was also God the Savior suffer. He went through trials. It's not like he's just throwing this out there. says this, um, I was reading actually an excerpt, excerpt from uh, Mark Talbot. That's a guy you may not know. He was partially paralyzed uh, when he was 17 years old, now a grown man. But uh, he writes this. He says, when things are going well for us, we tend to believe that life's ordinary goods can satisfy us. Ease and prosperity all too quickly seduce us into falling for the illusion that we have secured our own happiness and all we need is more of the same. When our lives begin to be significantly or consistently unpleasant, our quest for life's ordinary pleasures tends to lose its appeal to us. Trials test the worth, the value, the power, the hope of things we lean on and go to, and it burns it all away, leaving only Christ shining brighter and greater. Says a guy... He's paralyzed. Let me ask you something. If you're going through trials right now or have been through trials, and if you've never been through a trial, just wait. Um, It'll come. Do you really believe that the best thing that could ever happen to you is to become more like Christ, even if that means more trials and more suffering? Do we really believe that's what a loving God does? In fact, that's one of the most loving things he could do is to allow us to go through trials. That he has our best interest in mind. 
what is nice is that James, as he comes into this, he doesn't say, I, I want you to, to handle every trial perfectly and completely. What I want you to do actually is do something different. And how many, I mean, it's, it's a relief. And I say that because how many times do we go through trials and we're like, can I have a mulligan? Can I do a redo on this one? Because I'd like to do that one over again because I figured out how to do it now. Well, I, I don't think any of us want to go back and do it again, but we don't do it well. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it completely. I find myself often resenting trials. I, I mean, it's so funny. I told my wife just even this summer, I was like, I can't do that again. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I told her, I can't say I'm not because that's God. can't tell God what to do, but I don't want to do that again. I'm done doing that one. I'm done with that trial. Been there, done that, learned that lesson, not going back. You ever find yourself making those vows, not doing that again, God? Resenting trials, complaining about trials. What do you do in the middle of them? I know for me, I have gone into depression. I've been bitter. I've been anger, angry. I've, I've done defeat. I've done them all. I've thrown the pity parties, and you thrown the pity parties. And, and James comes along here, and he says, no, 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 wait, wake up. Keep the end in mind. You're becoming like Christ. That's the goal. That's, that's what's going on. So consider this joy. Not the wacko, woo, I'm happy for another trial. Like, who does that? But, but the deep, deep sense. And you just sing that song, deeper still and deeper still, where you just know... I'm okay. God's got me. He filtered this. He knows this. He knows what I'm going through. I, I'm going to be okay. This is forming Christ in me. And you hear those whispers from God, you're safe. You're safe. It, I mean, it's that whole quote, you're, the safest place to be is in the will of God, even though it could kill you. Does that make sense? It's the paradox of that. You're safe because no one can touch your soul. God has you. And it's, it's that deep-seated joy is that deep-seated sense of well-being. Like, I am, I'm going to not just be okay, but this is good. And I can live in that. And God's whispering to us, you're fine, as peace is coming on us. And, and that joy, this world cannot produce. You can't find it out there. It, it's a faith, and James is saying this, these young Christians, you, you need to understand and work this out. Like, you going through a trial and suffering is good, and, and, and in reality, it's God's plan and his purpose is being worked out in you, and that is the best thing ever. And he goes on, 
He says, now, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds. And he goes, for the testing of your faith produces that steadfastness or perseverance, and steadfastness then have its full effect so that you could be perfect and complete. So it's with the goal in mind that joy comes, and then we start to understand the goal of being like Christ. We understand then the call to persevere. Don't quit. Don't pull up short. Don't bail out. It's the ability to to persevere, staying power. I remember early on, I wanted to quit when I was here. And and this church was a great church. And I didn't even understand how great this church was back when we first started. And the people here and the passion for God and how it was a good church. And I wanted to quit. And it was had everything to do with me. And I just remember a friend of mine just saying, you can't quit. There's more in you. There's way more in you. You can't quit right now. God's called you. Don't bail on this. Let God work in you. This is your mess. Let him work. Anybody here quit? Anybody here about ready to quit? You can't do another day. You can't do another conversation. You can't do another appointment. You can't do another week or a year let alone another day or hour. And, and, and some of you are like, I don't even know how I got here this morning because I, I just, I'm done. Who here is in resentment, just a stew of resentment and anger and bitterness, and you're just like, man, all I've been doing is eating rocks for the last how many years? It's awful. See, God's not writing this He's not prompting James to write this because somehow there's just a bunch of weak Christians over there in the Middle East. He's writing this because this is what every person struggles with. At some point, we are all gonna wanna quit. Throw in the towel. It's normal. And he says, don't quit. Hang on. You know, that moment when Peyton and I were at that second summit and realized, oh, that's the real summit. I mean, there's just a part of me. It's just like, I I don't know how much longer we can go on because we've just pushed ourselves to our limit. And you can't breathe up there. And there's a moment there where it's like, okay, that's another 30 or 40 minute hike. And I just don't know how we're going to get there. And it's just one foot in front of the other. Slow. One step at a time. That's all perseverance is. It's nothing fancy. It's just, it's not even walking fast. It's, perseverance is this. It's slow steps sometimes. Barely moving, but keep going. James writes one thing in verse 12. He writes about the end and the reward at the end. 
Like, there's something that's coming. He says, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Crown of life. What's, what's the crown of life? life? The crown of life, I mean, I can imagine, you know, we've seen all these Olympians, they bend over and get the medal, and I, I don't know if it's that scene. I, I think it's Christ, us. It's, it's a crown. The Bible talks about how we'll receive crowns, and then once we're in front of Christ, we're just going to throw them down and worship anyway. But I can see him putting a crown on us, but the crown of life is God saying, you're with me now forever, you and I. No more trials. No more suffering. No more failures. No more going back to the old sins that we thought we'd left behind. No more of those kind of moments and agony and mortified and horrified. It's just life with Christ. It's saying, James is saying, he doesn't miss those slow steps. He doesn't. And when you think you're alone and you're isolated and nobody knows, and and sometimes it is, it's very isolating. God doesn't miss those small steps where you just, you got up today. We have a friend that just spent the night um, uh, came down for a funeral. A good friend of hers, her husband, just committed suicide this past week. So getting up today for some of us was huge. You know, over in Hebrews 12 talks about all these people of faith. They had faith by faith. They did faith, faith. And then it goes into this list of people that, well, this one was sawn in two, and this one was torn apart, and this one was beheaded, and this one suffered and suffered, and this and this, and these ones, they didn't ever see the promise, but they kept going forward, and, and it's, it gets to this moment where you just, you, you hear God's heart, and, and it's like, and he says in this, kind of this summary statement, and the world wasn't worthy of them. Because they kept going. And they didn't quit. And they persevered. And they thought, no, God and what he is doing, and I don't care the trial, God and his plan is worth it. He's perfecting me. He's, he's making me complete. I, I'll live for him. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Some of you, how do you do that? Some of you probably just need to surrender your agenda and, and your, your idea that you shouldn't have to go through these things and uh, life should be easy. That's hard. Some of you need to just look at God and say, I, I've got to trust you. I don't trust you. I want to manage the pain and keep it out of my life and instead, Lord, 
perfect me, complete me, put, you, put that joy in me, because I don't have even that joy, put it in me, that sense of well-being. You know, one of the things that happened when we were in Wyoming uh, doing this long horseback ride 28 miles in, we met a guy who was backpacking um, about 14 miles in. We caught up to him. And uh, had his, he was probably carrying 80, 90 pounds. And uh, he was by himself. And, I, I mean, it was all I could do just to not say, you are an idiot. Um, that's just dumb. You don't go hiking in the wilderness on your own. I mean, you're out there in the middle of nowhere. We saw, we saw a couple bears, and you just don't know what's going to happen out there. You just, you don't do that. Hopefully, if something goes wrong, you do make the news um, because it's a rescue effort and you get rescued. If not, you're dead. Um, you don't do this perseverance alone. And if you're wondering how to persevere, I would encourage you, look around for people who possibly have maybe some gray hair and silver hair and have walked with God a long time. And go ask them, how did you do it? And you'll hear stories of immense suffering and difficult trials, and you'll see the joy of the Lord in them. And maybe it's just safe to fall apart with them. You ever have somebody who's walked, I have, walked 30 or 40 years with Christ beyond me, and they just say, you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It's okay. That's how we persevere. We do this together. We do it in community. And some of you, I, I, I don't know, some of you need to, um, you wear a cloak of self-pity. You've put on this cloak. You go through trials and, and suffering, and, and you wear this cloak of self-pity, and, and you really live now to have trials, and you conjure up suffering, and you, you just produce it. And you wear it. Like, that's more comforting to you because you know that. And God's saying, no, no. Take that off. And put on joy. What a horrible cloak to wear. Put on joy. You're okay. We're going to close with a song, too. And, uh, I'll just let God uh, speak to you as we move through just these, uh, just these few moments.
just pull each one of us into a place where we're, we're like face to face with you. And Lord, I claim the, this, this verse and really the promise you've given us that we can ask you to bless us and we can ask you in your name to release things and they're released. So in your name, Jesus, bless each person here with joy. The knowledge that they're okay in you. That they're going to be fine in you. Bless each of our children who may not even be able to put words into it. Would you just give them joy? Would they come out of your house saying, I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. Just going to end on this song. It's a familiar one. And it's in trials. I think that God teaches us when we set our eyes on Him and worship Him, um, everything gets reframed in perspective and brings us up to the mountain and we see everything for miles around.
just say yes to you perfecting us and yes to you completing us. Yes, Lord. Yes. Say yes. Thank you for promises. We thank you for your love for us, your care for us, God. Walk with us as we leave today. Amen. If you just need to stay and uh, keep processing and not leave God's presence, please do. If you want prayer, we have people who would love to pray with you and whatever that is. As a church, we're a church to praise. I invite you to come out to the river. It's just a time where we spend like this, just in his presence, hearing from him and seeing him move. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.